Let's hear the word of God from Luke's gospel, starting with chapter 1, verses 5 through 13. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now to verses 57 through 80. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. How are y'all doing this morning? Oh, there we go. 
Some of us are doing wonderful. Not everybody's doing wonderful? Okay. Good, good. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm going to try to remember. So, so last week, uh, closing everything, uh, this TV in the back wasn't working, but the, the monitors were. Now, now the, the, it's flipped on you. Huh? How's it feel? Huh? Yeah? That's what I thought. That's what I thought. I have a TV back here, and, uh, and you guys don't. So uh, I'll try to remember that. I'll try to be gracious to you all. But um, the, the, the title for this sermon this morning is The, the Lord is Gracious. And, and I pray that through, through studying this text, through, through walking through this this morning, that, that you, you either remember or you learn again anew, afresh, that, that the Lord has been gracious to you. He's been gracious to you. And so as we continue in, in our series in, in Luke this morning, I want to invite you to consider with me this story of, of sweet Zachariah and Elizabeth. Two people committed to serving dutifully, and the work set before them in their community, called for the Lord's sake at a time when the people of Israel hadn't heard from God. They hadn't heard from God. Maybe, maybe that bothered some people. Maybe that made some people's fervor for God waver. But not Zechariah and Elizabeth. No, I mean, surely, surely they grew up hearing all the wonderful stories of the Ancient of Days. How he appeared to Abraham and promised him a child. How he established the nation of Israel and gave them a land and an identity. How he rescued his people through Moses and led them through the wilderness. How this God raised up judges and prophets and kings to lead his people. And how even still the people would turn away from him. The people's relationship to God would ebb and flow through the time of exile. But God proved himself faithful. And so even in this time of silence and waiting, they still trusted God. They remained committed to him, not even fully grasping just how committed he was to them. Now, eventually, Zechariah and Elizabeth would marry. Surely they would be a strong support to one another, so full of life and gratitude toward God. And surely in their marriage, they had high hopes for God to gift them a child. And so day after day and month after month, they'd pray. And yet no child would come. No rooms to be prepared. No extra mouths to feed. They dreamed of the day that they'd raise a child together. They longed for it. And so they waited. But no child would come. And eventually reality would start to settle in. Age would show. That dream would end. And yet they still remained committed to the Lord. They longed for his intervention. If not with their family, at least, at least he could do something for the people of Israel. Socially and politically, things were less than ideal. Their people were under Roman rule. Mistreated, marginalized. I mean, even the Jewish king Herod was a beast of a ruler. He was cruel and spiteful and vindictive. They'd been through a lot. And there they were, waiting for God to bring what he had promised, day after day and month after month, praying that God would bring deliverance. But each year, there was no change, no difference. The days would only seem to grow darker, dimmer, bleaker, 
You think, I've, I've asked God to move. I've asked God to deliver. I've asked God's will to be done. Why not now, God? Why not today? How much longer will you have us wait? And at some point you begin to wonder if it's even worth asking at all. Maybe the moment has passed us by. You see, it's possible for our prayers to become devoid of anticipation and hope. And an anticipationless prayer life might be symptomatic of an increasingly deteriorating faith. At this point, you still believe God. But if He were about to do something in your day, you probably wouldn't believe it. You probably wouldn't believe it. But as Luke begins his gospel, he intends to point us to the dawning of a new day, a new era. But Luke doesn't just come right out and say, hey, look, God is fulfilling all of his promises. Instead, he gives us these vignettes pregnant with Old Testament references and allusions to signal to us that God is doing something. After years of waiting in silence, I mean, you, you start to temper expectations a bit, don't you? Every year begins to feel like more of the same. I mean, you get winter, spring, summer, fall. Maybe right now it feels like one more Advent. It's just one more Christmas season. More of the same, more waiting, more longing, more wishing that things will change, and then they don't. And year after year, you get more of the same until you start to settle in. You still get excited from time to time. I mean, you still enjoy one season over the other. But you don't get wildly overjoyed anymore. I mean, what's, what's even the point? You look at the bleak circumstances of the world and you say to yourself, things will never change. Injustice will never be wiped out. Sin will never be vanquished. The poor and needy will continue to be so. But Luke is trying to get us to see that what's happening here is more than personal. It's social, yes, it's, but it's also spiritual and it's also political and it's, it's cosmic. I mean, it touches everything. Luke's trying to say, hey there, community leaders, this affects you. Hey there, outcasts, this is going to be for you. Hey there, you religious, there's a hope coming. Love comes down. Now, these details about Zachariah and Elizabeth, they should, really, they should really remind us of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, their stories have some interesting similarities and overlaps, but notice how with Zechariah, it's possible to be faithful to the commands of God and still respond to divine activity with hopelessness and unbelief. And yet, not even Zechariah's skepticism diminishes God's intent for mercy. God will be merciful to whom He pleases. And it has pleased Him to be merciful to His people at this time, in this way. God's activity is not contingent on Zechariah's receptivity to it. After his encounter with the angel, Zechariah will live in silence for the next nine months. But during that time, he will get a taste for just how loud and real God's activity can be in the midst of seasons of silence. God meets Zechariah in his unbelief. But he doesn't leave him there. 
He's going to do something through him. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to consider two questions. And I hope to spend the most time on the second one. But the first one is this. Do you know why they called him John? And then the second one. What does the Spirit of God sing over his people? First, what then is this child going to be, the people ask in verse 66. What then is this child going to be? Do you know why they called him John? Now, even though this account is about the birth of John, the story really seems to account for the naming of John and reminds us that it's God who does the naming. And even though the meaning of John's name is not expounded upon here, I can't get over the fact that his name is laden with meaning that directly pertains to his task and calling. There are at least four reasons I see here for why they called him John. A couple of these are obvious, but we're going to state them anyways. The first is this, because it fulfills what the angel said. It fulfills what the angel said. The angel of the Lord told Zechariah that the child's name would be John. In verse 13, the angel of the Lord said to him, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What do you think that means? Which one? Which prayer? The the text doesn't tell us. But the promise of a child and the coming of the Messiah are very much intermingled here. The angel goes on, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Number two, they call him John because it's what God intended. It's what God intended. The the angel was really just a messenger representing the Lord. Meaning the Lord intended that his name be John. Now there aren't many occasions in scripture where the Lord gives someone a name. But in this case, the Lord has decided this child's name will be John. And the people's response is, but there's no one among your relatives with that name. And here, let every parent observe that even in the first century, new parents sometimes had to wait until the last minute before revealing their newborn's name, lest they get unwanted input, right? <laughs> it's right here. It's like, but you don't, nobody's called name. You got Zachariah. Why don't you call him Zachariah? No, we're going to call him John. Now, just as an aside here, I know that uh, last week we talked about uh, Erica mentioned that she prayed that uh, an angel would never appear to her. But if an angel, this is, this is for you, any any possible prospective parents. If an angel appears to you telling you what to name your child, you do it. Okay? You do it. (coughs) Number three. The child's name is John because it proves Zachariah's belief. In naming the child John, Zachariah's demonstrating that this child is to be who God has appointed him to be. Zechariah is willing to break cultural conventions, though he is held to them so closely because God is doing a new thing. And this is what he said he would do. This is how he said he would do it. And so, so Zechariah, though he responded with questions and unbelief, is now responding saying, no, the child's name is John. What God is doing here, he is doing this. This is happening because of God. The child's name is John. It's out of my hands. It's what he's doing. And I'm trusting him. Number four, because his name indicates his God-appointed calling. John's name means Yahweh 
is gracious. That's what his name means. And truthfully, there's not a ton we know about John's life. But what we do know is that John is a forerunner for Jesus. His entire life and ministry will be to point people to Jesus as the definition of God's graciousness toward others. And so as his story unfolds, John will be inviting people to prepare their hearts to receive the coming Messiah. I mean, verse 80 ends with John growing and becoming strong in the Spirit and going into the wilderness until his public ministry. And from there, John will be the voice that Isaiah foretold, crying out from the wilderness, inviting people to repent of their sins and to turn to the only one who can bring rescue. So John's life is going to be a tangible witness by which people will come to know the graciousness of God toward them. I mean, just imagine your very life intended to communicate to others with words and actions that God is being gracious to you and to you and to you and to you. God is being gracious to you. This Advent season, have you found yourself becoming more open to the idea of Jesus? You think, do I I need to be more open to Jesus? Why not? Are you kidding me? Why not? Does your heart welcome him with gladness? Are you even a little bit intrigued? Or do you find yourself going through the motions? It's okay if you are. But take stock. Locate yourself. Where are you at on this spiritual journey? Don't let the familiarity of the Christian story or the failures of other Christians make you jaded toward Jesus. Because He is everything. He's everything. He's the whole thing. Not me, not you. Him. D.A. Carson makes this point that, that Luke isn't trying to tell us that there's two essential births of two essential men taking place. But rather, Jesus is central to Luke's argument. One serves the other. One announces the other. The birth of Jesus is the focal point of all of history. The other one's just pointing him out. Don't mistake that. We have these two birth narratives. One's just pointing the other out. That's what he's doing. That's what his whole, that's what his whole life is for. John's entire life will be one of fading into the background. And that, that would upset most of us. Like, my, my whole life is just to fade for the sake of another. Unless, unless the subject that's coming into the foreground is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then you say, I want him to be on the foreground. I want him to be front and center. Somebody get him a stage. Somebody elevate him. When you buy tickets to a concert, it's it's probably because you want to see the main act. There's one band in particular you want to go see, and that's why you buy the tickets. And on a good day, the opening act has a couple of good songs, right? But you're willing to endure that that, that first set because you want to hear the, you want to hear the, the, the main event. Well, John is nobody's main act. 
and neither are you, and neither should you treat someone else as such, no matter how important they've been to your life or faith. Jesus is the main act. He's the main event. Some days I'm tempted to ask myself, am am I impressive? Probably not. But what I do know is that Jesus is. He is impressive. He is worthy. Look to him. That's what John's life is going to be about. People will fail you, but God will not. God will surprise you with just how great his grace is toward you. He will surprise you. So don't waver at how good you think God will be to you. Even if you set your sights high, He will outdo them. Don't doubt the goodness of God toward you. Our passage is prodding you to marvel. God is exceedingly good toward you. Just ask Zechariah. God will surprise you. And He's doing far more, even right now. He's doing far more than you think He is. Second, what does the Spirit of God sing over His people? What does the Spirit of God sing over His people? You ready for this? He sings salvation. He sings salvation over you. Now for Zechariah, remember earlier in our passage, he he was chosen by Lot to burn incense in the temple, which would have been a a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. And when he came out of the holy place, he was likely supposed to, to speak the priestly blessing over the people. If you look back at earlier at verse 21, it says that while Zechariah was in the temple burning incense, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he, he could not speak to them. Listen, I'm, I'm going to read this slowly. When you hear this, Zechariah was probably to say this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Think about that. Think about this moment in human history, what God is doing. Think about that. Instead of blessing that the people get hand motions and silence, I mean, what, what, what is John even doing? Like, he can't talk. He's just like... Like, he must have seen a vision. He must have seen a vision. He must, something must have happened. But he can't share it. I mean, it's like, what, what does it mean? They, they don't know. John can't tell them. Maybe he doesn't even fully know. He just knows he can't talk. What he saw, he saw. What he heard, he heard. But then at John's birth, all the neighbors echoing throughout the Judean hillside are bussing about what God is doing through this elderly priestly couple. He's giving them a child. And now it's fitting that the first words out of Zechariah's mouth is this priestly benediction, speaking a blessing over the people, proclaiming God's grace and peace to them that the face of God will turn toward them through the birth of another son. Not Zachariah's son, but Mary's boy. That's what he's saying. So Zachariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, sings of God's great grace and mercy and peace over his people. I mean, prophetic words were so distant at this point. The people probably thought it was an ancient practice that God had laid to rest. And here they receive the words 
of Zechariah. Friends, God has not stopped being this way. He has not stopped singing his song of blessing over you, fulfilling all of his promises. The light of Christ has not dimmed since. When Christ came into the world, light shone in the darkness. It's still shining. Can't you see it? He's still singing. Can't you hear it? Zechariah's benediction can be broken into two sections. The first is about the salvation to come, and the second is about John's role in the process. At first, we learn of the strength and goal of our salvation, and at the second, we come to understand how John will prepare us for it. So first, the the salvation to come. The the thrust of this song, I mean, listen, John just had a baby, and he's singing a song, and it's not really about John. It's about somebody else. He's singing about another baby, right? Like John, John, Zechariah loves his son, but the Messiah is coming. And so the the thrust of this song is found right here in the the opening line in verse 68 when it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The Lord has visited his people. I mean, this, this language of visitation comes up twice here. First in verse 68, it says, He has come to redeem them. He has come. Literally, he has shown concern for his people, and he's come to help them. And then later in, in verse 78, it says, The rising sun will come to us from heaven. Will come to us. And then again, uh, the, 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 so the light of the Lord has shone in the dark places. The one who is very God, a very God, has come as Christ the Lord. And when the people look upon Jesus, they will see the face of God. He has come to them. And in his visitation, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation. This is how he helps his people. Now, in the ancient world, the strongest animals had horns, and they charge others with their heads. I mean, like an ox, its horn was a source of strength and protection, which was used as a metaphor to describe kingly strength. And in his song, Zechariah also tells us where this horn is found. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, church, we have spent the past several months talking about the people asking for a king and the lineage and the failures of kings. Over the past year, we've been talking about how the one we're looking for is not in the judges. The one we're looking for is not in the kings. But God does promise a king to rule from the line of David. Zechariah is saying, your king is here. He is coming But what kind of strength must he conjure for us? It's not military. And it's not entirely political. Now, this child hasn't come to conquer and rule Rome. That's far too small and shallow. We need something more comprehensive. Now, the salvation this child king has come to give is through overcoming sin and death and destruction. This is why John's call will be to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. We need a remedy for that. Truthfully, our our tendency is to underestimate the role of sin. And that's saying a lot because we we attribute a lot of things to sin. I mean, there's there's a lot of problems 
a lot of sin. Herman Bobbing puts it this way. He says, every class and status in society, every vocation and business, every office and profession brings with it its own peculiar dangers and its own peculiar sins. The sins of urbanites differ from those of village people, those of farmers from the sins of merchants, those of the learned from those of the the children from those of adults. As it happens, we take notice of only a very small portion of the sins of our limited group. And of that, only superficially, only superficially, we take very small notice of the sins of the, the people that surround us. They might annoy us. And we, we, we pick up some things, but we're not picking up at all of it. There's a lot more there. Even among us, there's, there's a lot more here. Right? Bobby goes on to conclude, whoever understands something of the wickedness and subtlety of the human heart is not at all surprised that there is so much evil in the world. Rather, he marvels that so much good can still be found in the world. And he worships, get this, he worships the wisdom of God who with such a human race still knows how to accomplish so much. Isn't that amazing? That God can do something with us. And he does. So you see, the strength of the horn comes in his ability to endure the pangs of the serpent's bite, to overcome the venomous sin that torments the soul. He can endure and absorb, be dealt its fatal blows, and still come out on the other side. So even as Christmas comes with the birth of Christ, we are being pointed to the light that will shine on Easter Sunday. So here we see the strength of this salvation. But what is the goal of this salvation? We find our answer starting in verse 74. God's plan from long ago was to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. All our days. You see, Zechariah is not retreating from life or looking only to a a future reward in heaven. His heart desires to serve God right now. Right now. This is what a meaningful life is all about. The reason why God is bringing us salvation is to bless us. It's to free us to be who we were meant to be. There is no life apart from God, and there is no life with God apart from Jesus. God does not intend to withhold this life from us, but to usher it in through His Son. So salvation enables those who belong to God to serve Him. Now maybe the most servant-like aspect of our lives is what we give to our families or or, or to our jobs, or or probably to both. We build loyalty and, and care and integrity and trust and accountability All that, this is just to give you something to compare to. Serving the Lord is not half-hearted. It's devotion. It's not something to be done casually, but reverently. With a deep sense of gratitude and respect and love and belonging. 
God has destined, hear this, he is destined to bless you with his favor through his son Jesus. Before you uttered a word, God intended favor upon you. As you ache in the midst of hurt and hardship, God is working to show you his favor. As your faith in him ebbs and flows, God is moving toward you. Each day is one day closer to God, accomplishing all that he wills. Second, second part of this song, John's role in the process. Now, we've already said much about John, but but here in the song, Zechariah recognizes that John will be called a prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the son of the Most High. John will be a prophet of the Most High. For you, he says, will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. So we honor John's role by preparing our hearts for Jesus. Let every heart prepare and room for the forgiveness that Jesus comes to offer. The salvation you need is one that accounts for the sin problem. No strategy for self-salvation will do. John is telling us that this is what Jesus has come to rescue us from. He's come to bring forgiveness of sins. So we honor our understanding of John when we do that. John's whole ministry is readying us for Jesus. And so if we have not readied ourselves to see him, then we've bypassed John. We've ignored him. We've ignored his ministry. But instead, pay attention to John only to gaze upon the goodness of God in Jesus. Ready yourselves to fill your hearts with the love of Jesus. What John proclaims, Jesus delivers. What John points to, Jesus will be. So as we come to to the end of our time this morning, I I want us to acknowledge again the peculiar events that have unfolded that have led to the dawning of this new era. First, the old barren ones have given birth. Second, the child is given a unique name, one that means the Lord is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And third, the mute has broken into song. These things led the crowd to fear and reflect. And so I invite you to do the same this morning. Fear the Lord and reflect on what He has done and on what He will do. Who do you proclaim the Lord to be this day? And how are you moving toward Him in your own life? It's easy to grow complacent. It's reasonable, it's probably reasonable to be a bit jaded. But don't miss how the Lord has been gracious to you. If anything, this story tells us that God is moving toward us with more grace and more mercy, even when all of our experiences have told us is that there's darkness and silence. God works even through skepticism and doubt. He can work through unbelief to birth profound trust in what He will do. So let us wait with anticipation on what He is so, so eager to do for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God. We worship you. We praise you. We lift your name high. For you, God, you are worthy. You have been so gracious to us. God, I pray that we would just see it this morning. Lord, thank you for sending John. Thank you for sending John. I don't don't know why you did it this way, but God, I praise you for doing it this way. 
And God, we pray that you would, you would fill our hearts with, with hope. God, fill our hearts with your love, your grace. That is abundant. It's, it's pouring out. It's gushing out. You have plenty for, for all of us and more. God, may we remember what you have done. And trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, we're going to practice communion together. And here's the beautiful thing about communion. This is a meal we celebrate because Jesus came. In the fullness of time, Jesus came and did all that was necessary to live a life of love. He showed us who God is. He was God himself dwelling amongst us. He took upon himself the ransom, the cost. He died upon the cross, and he's resurrected. And so we take this meal as a means of grace. We partake in it saying, yes, we remember, we honor, we acknowledge, we receive your grace, Jesus. But we also do it as we eagerly anticipate what's coming soon. We eat until he comes back. Does this make sense? We feast together as a body until he comes back so that one day we will feast forever together perfectly. But till that day comes, this is a, an anticipation. Do you guys know what an appetizer is? You guys know what an appetizer is? I love appetizers. Right? I don't need much to get me more excited about the meal, but I love appetizers. That's what this is. Every time we come together as a family, it's an appetizer. It should whet your appetite. It should say, this is good. This is great. Oh my goodness, this is wonderful to feast together with the family. It's so good, but it's going to be so much better. Do you get that? Every time we come to worship together as the body, it should be an appetizer. Do you feel that? Every time we sing together as a church body, as we praise his name, it's an appetizer. It's, it's oh my gosh, God, this is so good. Thank you so much. I can get a taste of the kingdom, but I know one day it's going to be so much better. When you show grace, forgiveness, love to each other, you're like, oh, this is so good, God. Thank you so much. This is so good. But it's going to be so much better. So that's what we're doing this morning as we practice communion. We're acknowledging that Jesus came in the fullness of time. Just like he promised he would. But he's coming back. So we take the body. We take the bread that was broken. We remember that the body was broken for us. And as we partake in in the juice and in the drink, we remember that his blood was shed for us. And we partake in communion together as a church family. This is what we're doing. We're feasting together. We're having an appetizer together. We're receiving his grace together until he comes back. And every time we do so, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? I'm going to invite the servers to come up. And while they're doing that, I want to explain to you how we partake in communion here. If you're, not, if you're new to here, we partake in communion by taking intinction. Where you've been given the bread, you'll dip it into the cup and you'll partake of it. We'll say this section will come down this direction, down this aisle. Come to this serving station and then go around. This section will come down this aisle, serve and go around. That section down the middle, go around, down that way, and then go around. This meal is for those who profess and believe as we are remembering together and feasting together and anticipating his arrival. My people, if you want to take communion as you come up here, as you receive, you're welcome to take it immediately. You're welcome to take it back to your seat. You're welcome to pray. You're welcome to do whatever it means. But as you receive this grace together, may we receive it as a family. Thanking God every moment. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this feast and this celebration. We thank you for the appetizer. God, we know we'll one day feast perfectly forever with you, but till that day, we thank you for this means of grace. Your love bestowed to us as we remember the work of Christ and as we receive the gift of your grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to come and receive communion. If there's anyone who needs us to come to them, please, uh, you can do so by raising your hand and we will come to you.
Let us pray. Thank you, God, for this means of grace. Thank you for communion, that we can partake as a family. We eagerly anticipate your arrival. We eagerly anticipate your coming again. In the meantime, God, we thank you for the way you let us love each other, be in community together, to eat together, to be the appetizer. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.